All right, good evening. Um, welcome to Pigeon Post. This is the um, <clears throat> the midnight broadcast, as it is, <laughs> 12.30. And um, I'm going to try to keep this to 30 minutes. Um, sounds kind of impossible. But um, let, me, let me do my best to do that. So I'm just going to jump right in, um, even though I haven't posted in a while. I really just want to answer a question. What do we mean by the gospel? What is the gospel? Um, so gospel means good news. And if I were to tell someone the good news, um, I would have to tell them um, the bad news first, right? Because the gospel comes to us in our state of sin, where we're enemies of God. And then we hear this good message, this message of how to be saved. And so what is that message? You know, um, <clears throat> as a Christian, uh, when Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons come to my door, um, I find that we don't believe the same thing. Um, we don't we don't mean the same thing uh, when we talk about the gospel. Um, now we might be able to open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew or something like that, and we could read the Gospel of Matthew, um, but we wouldn't uh, come to the same conclusions after reading it. So merely reading one of the Gospels um, doesn't necessarily uh, clarify what is the gospel. Um, you know, I, I find it interesting that God um, used um, thousands of years and um, dozens and dozens and dozens of books. Well, dozens and dozens? Dozens? Eh, okay. 66. I don't know. <laughs> I'm a math teacher, so pay no attention to the math here. Um but he used 66 books, right, over thousands of years, over many different authors, to give us the truth of the gospel. And so merely, you know, picking out one verse here or there, um, it doesn't always clarify um, what we mean when we say the gospel. Um, so... I'm just going to kind of start reading scripture, and I don't really have great notes, I'll admit. Um, I don't have great notes right now, but um, I have some passages uh, picked out. So I want to just kind of start with, like, what do we mean when we say the gospel? And um, hopefully everything works well here. I don't usually do this without, like, a hard copy of the Bible, so... I'm having to navigate um, this Kindle version of the Bible, and I'm still not really great with Kindle, even though I probably sound really old when I say that. Um, but anyway, so um, there's this guy, the Apostle Paul, and he is, you know, probably the greatest missionary or the missionary that Jesus made a missionary and set apart to do this work of taking the gospel to the nations along with the other apostles, right? 
So in 1 Corinthians 15, um, sorry, my elbow just squeaked there. So just wanted to, to let you know if you heard a weird squeak. That's what's going on. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, and if you want to kind of turn through these passages with me, I'm going to be in about, oh, six or seven different places. Um, and uh, I think it'd be really helpful um, if you just kind of followed along with me. Uh, I'll be reading a lot of scripture. And what I, what I want to show whoever's listening to this is that you could go to a church um, or even pick up a track, you know, a little gospel literature or whatever. And usually what you'll have there is a couple of verses, right? And even um, some pastors are kind of guilty of just putting a couple of verses. And sometimes that's okay, uh, but it doesn't always prove their point because, um, you know, I could pick, you know, different phrases out of Hamlet and try to tell you, oh, Hamlet is really about this and just read you a couple of sentences out of it. Um, and then just kind of tell all my own thoughts after that. But that's not the same thing as reading Hamlet and seeing like what Shakespeare is saying, right? Um, so I want to read some really large chunks because honestly, I'm trying to convince you of something and trying to convince you of its importance as well. And so I want to show all of us listening that that. I'm not over amplifying the importance of it. I'm giving, I'm trying to give it the same importance that scripture gives it. And also that I'm not trying to change the message that I'm trying to show you the message of scripture. And so I would even say like, you know, don't, you don't have to be convinced by this, even though I'm reading long chunks of scripture, like go back and see if I'm lying, go back and reread it for yourself. Um, so let's dive in. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15, this is Paul writing um, a letter to a church in Corinth. Now I want to, now excuse me, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel. There's that word, the gospel. I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believed in vain. So we see that the gospel is like a word right? Um, not entirely tangible, right? It's something that we have, a word that we have to hold fast to and make sure that we're not believing in vain, right? And here is that word, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That So this is important. This is the first importance, right? So Paul didn't go in and deliver um, five steps you know, to be a better worker at your job or the 10 steps of wisdom or, you know, um, how to have a better marriage. Like that's not Paul's mindset. And so I think that first starts challenging like the American mindset of like going to church as a self-improvement method uh, instead of what, what the Bible itself, right? What, says is of first importance um, more than who we vote for more than um, having a great marriage um, and and this is an important point I think because the gospel is at the heart 
you know, of every, it's the place where the blood flows into and out of, right? It's the, the mechanism. And so like, that doesn't mean that if you get the gospel right, you'll have a great marriage necessarily or anything like that. But it does mean that if there's a difference between the root and the fruit, right? So Paul is identifying the gospel as important, nourishing, like it's at the root, at the heart of whatever Christianity is, right? So I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul's saying this is how, it's basically like saying the gospel of Matthew is true or the gospel of Mark, Luke, John. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And Paul is probably more likely referring to the Old Testament scriptures that told how Christ was going to die and what was going to happen there. Um, That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So you can see that Paul is thinking really big here. It's not that the Old Testament is neat little stories that we learn of how to be brave like David and and how to not be, um, you know, uh, bitter like Saul and stuff like that. It's not character lessons in the Old Testament. And, um, you know, wisdom literature mainly, it's it's that these scriptures were testifying about Jesus. And I'm not going to read Luke 24, but if you don't believe me on that side point, maybe read Luke 24 and see what Jesus says about the, the scriptures, the Old Testament, that they're all about him. Um, and Paul goes on to just list some more things that happened after that, that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12, that he appeared. It's basically just locating the gospel as a historical event. So the gospel is something that happened. It actually includes all the way back to Genesis because of the importance of the scriptures testifying to this. And it includes believing that Jesus was a real person, that he was 100% God and 100% man, Um, that he died for our sins Um, that he was buried, like he was really dead. His heart stopped beating, his brain shut off, lungs didn't work, dead, 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 right? Dead as you can be. And that he came back to life. And so one of the things that I'll ask people sometimes when I'm talking to them about Jesus is, you know, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Um, it's a great question because some people will identify themselves as some kind of, some form of Christianity, or they might say that Jesus, if they're not a Christian, they might say Jesus is a great guy or a great teacher. But the, the point is like, did he rise from the dead? That's, that's what I want to know. Um, or one of the things that I want to know, because it's a critical part of the gospel. So we are already see that Paul is, is making this, um, a non-negotiable statement. And I know that we don't really care for those in our society too much. I mean, it's not just our society. It's just kind of human nature. We don't like non-negotiables, but God is God. And part of the gospel is that Christ rose from the dead. And if we deny that, then we've denied the whole thing. And so we have to see that there is a criteria 
of things that must be believed in our heart or else we'll believe in vain, as Paul says. Um, <clears throat> uh, so yeah, he mentions these other things that happened if you're looking in um, verses 1 through 11, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and then he mentions himself. He says, uh, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul didn't come to God seeking him. Paul was against God. He was against Jesus. Um, he was obviously trying to follow the law. He was a teacher, um, a Jewish teacher, and he was persecuting the church because he thought that they were heretics. And I don't think they used that word back then, but regardless, that, that was his mindset. And he had no intention of becoming a Christian until God came and saved him. And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So Paul says that, that God gave him grace, something he didn't deserve. Um, he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Um, <clears throat> whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, I, I took the trouble of going through those last few verses because I think this is really important and it's something that I don't, a lot of people don't talk about. Um, but it's the idea that the whole Bible is about Christ. The whole Bible is about this one gospel. And Paul says, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And so they were preaching the same gospel. So um, Paul and the other apostles are preaching the same gospel. It's essentially the same gospel in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. There aren't two different gospels, and there won't be a different gospel um, later on. This is one gospel, and it's a gospel of faith. And, um, excuse me, you'll see when Paul starts talking that he uses Abraham as his example of faith. Abraham's from way in the Old Testament before even Moses. Um, so it was always about uh, repent and believe, which is faith, right? Turn from looking towards what you want and turn towards God, forsaking your sin, right? Turning away from your sin, realizing that you're a sinner and, and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, whether in the Old Testament it's believing um, in this kind of, you know, it might not even be like completely explicit, like they might not know exactly what's going to happen, but they were having their faith in God to provide the sacrifice the same way Abraham had his faith in God to provide the sacrifice. So Paul's not merely speaking for himself. And that's what I think a lot of people um, get hung up on. They just don't like Paul, you know, because it's very easy to, to see what Paul is preaching um, and people like to say, well, this is what James says, and this is what uh, Jesus says, and this is what the Old Testament says, and this is what Peter says, and, and see, Paul is different than them. And, there's, and then they start doing the, all these silly gymnastics. Um, but you'll see, I mean, that's also what I'm trying to prove to you, is that there's one gospel, okay? So one gospel, no matter who's preaching it, one true gospel and so uh, it is proper to look at what Paul says and to take it 
and give it all the, the weight and authority that it has because Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, he's not making this up. He got it from Jesus Christ. And um, so don't, I, I encourage you, don't set the Bible against itself. Paul is not against James. They're all preaching the same gospel. Um, <clears throat> so Paul's not speaking merely for himself or for his own time even, but for the people of God at all times and by the authority of Christ himself. So um, it's not a small thing to say that Paul gives something first importance. It would be the same first importance that um, uh, any of the other apostles would give the gospel and the importance that Jesus himself gave. So um, I'm going to try to make sure that I read from um, at least these four, Jesus, Peter, John, and Paul. And uh, hopefully that's enough to convince you. <laughs> um, so you see Paul's sort of historical definition of the gospel, right? Um, and then I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians 5. Um which is kind of a sequel to 1 Corinthians. And I want to show you that it's not just about assenting to these facts. So I think a lot of people, um, while it's good to ask the question, as I just said, like, did Jesus rise from the dead? Um, it's not enough to, to merely say, yes, I believe the historical fact um, that Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead. We, we're going to see really quickly that the meaning attached to that fact um, is very important. Uh, like, who is Jesus? So I mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, okay? Uh, they might believe that Jesus died and rose again, um, although usually there's some weirdness there as well, but I don't want to get into that stuff that's about. Um, but the fact is they have the wrong Jesus, right? And so um, a person can't repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with a Jehovah's Witness gospel or a Mormon gospel um, because it's not the same Jesus that we're talking. It's not the Jesus of Scripture, right? Remember that, that Paul preached according to the Scriptures, and Jesus is Yahweh. He's not a lesser God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say, and different from Jehovah. Because then who can he save if he's, if he's not um, the Lord God himself? Um, and then he's also not just one in a succession of gods, uh, as, the, as the Mormons teach, or the brother of Lucifer. The brother of Lucifer could not save us. Um, so, um, you know... Operating in these, we're going to get to false gospels in a second, but just know that, that there is a, count, a master counterfeiter at work, right? The devil, the, um, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren, you know. And, and you can start spotting his counterfeits because they have the same earmarks to them. So there's a handful of American cults that were really focused on end-time stuff and, and birthed out of that were all kinds uh, of, of cults, to, for lack of a better word. Um, like, uh, I don't even remember what it's called, but uh, Mary Baker Eddy, her thing, Christian, is it Christian Science? 
and um, I might be getting her confused, I'm sorry, it's late, <laughs> with uh, some forms of Seventh-day Adventism and um, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Uh, basically, these all kind of start at the same time, and they all have like a really similar thing going on, uh, which is to pretty much compromise the identity of Christ, but also they make it a gospel of works. It's about what you can do. Um, so Paul, in Second in 1 Corinthians 15, what we read, says, look, you have to have the right historical, according to the scriptures, Jesus. You have to know who Jesus is and what he did. And now into the meaning of that, right? So 2 Corinthians 5, uh, I'll read 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And in, so this already, there's reconciliation, this idea of reconciliation. And so you can't just tell somebody, oh, Jesus died and rose again. That doesn't mean anything until you say, well, you know you're a sinner, right? I'm a sinner. We're all sinners, right? But you have to kind of own it, right? There's a a real personal, everybody has a personal relationship with God. The problem is that relationship is one of enemy to king, right, and creator. We are enemies of God because of our sin nature and because of the sins that we expressly commit. We are born and sworn enemies of God. And we need reconciliation. There's a definite need for Christ and so the meaning of what Jesus did is also the gospel. We have to get the meaning right. We have to get who Jesus is, what he did, and what it means. We can't just say a creed and be saved. That's not how it works. Um, so we need reconciliation. It says uh, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. Um, so this means that it's for everybody in the world that God is, is only doing this through Christ, not through any other way, only through Christ. There's exclusivity here. Um, and that means Jesus is the only way, right? And he's not counting their sins against them, okay, because of what Jesus is doing. So we see that that's what it means for Christ to die for our sins. It means that he's taking the penalty and the punishment for sin so that we don't have to. It's called a substitution, right? He's taking our place. Um, it, it's funny. Uh, I don't think the song is about Jesus. <laughs> Anytime I hear the Coldplay song, In My Place, I just think about Jesus dying in my place. Um, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So this is the message that Paul's bringing, like reconciliation, like, Think about someone who maybe is estranged from their father or mother and, and we're trying to help them and say, hey, you know, there's, there's a reconciliation that needs to happen. Here's how it happens. He, Paul's bringing that message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So God is choosing to 
make his appeal through the world to the world by the preaching of the gospel. So the message has to be right because we're speaking for God. And that's why it has to be based on scripture. And that's why it's of first importance because uh, and Paul says, we implore you, like we're begging you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, right? And he says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a big theological statement, um, but super cool, important verse that shows you the great exchange, that Christ was not the sinner on the cross, but the sin was put on him so that we might get his righteousness, the righteousness of God, um, which is not something that we can make ourselves. It's something we have to be given as a gift. Okay, so I'm hoping that those two passages from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians just kind of show you that there is a, a reality to... Uh, well, I didn't want to use the word reality yet. Let me say this. That there is a message, right? And that message is historical and true. Something that really happened about who Jesus is and what he did and what was done to him and what happened afterwards and what that the scriptures are all testifying to that and what it means. That there's a response required of us and also that there's a reality a real change in our heart. It says, if, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So here's getting into kind of the big idea here and what I want to convince you of is that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are lost people and there are what Bible calls saved people, okay? Lost and saved. There are people that are walking in the darkness and there are people that are walking in the light. There are old creations and new creations, as Paul says here. Um, we could go with, the Bible has so many analogies. Um, uh, enemies of God and then sons of God and daughters of God, adopted children of God. There are two kinds of people in the world. And that, because the gospel is of first importance, I do believe that that's the Christian mindset. So if, if you look out at the world, I would challenge you and just ask you, like, what kind of people do you see? When you look at the world, do you see there's Democrats and Republicans, or there's Americans and non-Americans, or there's this color people and this color people. Like the world wants us in that mindset because it's constantly trying to change what we have in first importance. Our first importance should be what Paul in the Bible and Jesus's first importance is, which is the gospel. And so in our worldview, we have two eyes to see the world, right? And we're looking out to see one picture. And in this one picture, there are lost and there are saved. And that's more important. That is the real distinction than any other distinction we can make, okay? So as Christians, we don't want to look out and say, there's Baptist and there's everybody else. 
or there's uh, whatever distinction you want to make. You know, people who like Michael Jordan and everybody else. I mean, you, the things that we think about, the things that we find most important, that tends to be the, the primary distinction that we operate with. You know, there's conservatives and liberals. There's... Um, um, you know, people that like to wear masks uh, for COVID-19 and people that refuse, you know, it's, it's this constant division. And the problem is not that the world isn't divided. The world is divided. The problem is that we are not having the, the, uh, the vision that God wants us to have about what the division is and what it means. So when we look out at the world, we see that there's all different races all different nationalities, all different abilities, but the primary distinction is between the lost and the saved, the believers and the unbelievers, and, and hopefully that that's sinking in. I, I belabor the point because I think it's important. There's two kinds of people in the world, right? Now, here's the other thing about Christianity and, the, and its worldview, is it, it's not that, that it's an us versus them, right? Because we are ambassadors, if we're believers, we're ambassadors from this side to the other side. And, and the message is be reconciled to God. And that is a good message. Now, the other side doesn't want to hear it just like we didn't want to hear it when we were on the other side. And that's why it's so important to understand how bad as a believer, how bad I was, Paul says he's the chief of sinners, right? And, and, and he, he had to have the grace of God for everything that was in his life that changed to good. So, so that's the thing. Two kinds of people, one gospel. Now, um, let me try to um, kind of drill down a little bit. I already showed you what Paul thinks about the gospel, but I want, it's so important that, and I want to try to convince you through an entire book that he wrote. Okay, well, I think we're already at 30 minutes, so that's not going to happen. But <laughs> now let's change the goal. Maybe I can finish within an hour. Um, so I'm going to go through just some highlighted passages in Galatians where Paul is, is well, I'll just show you. I'll just read it. Okay. Um, and I'm going to be pretty quick here, so if you might have to pause it, but I'll try to tell you where I'm reading from so you can see. Galatians 1.6, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. So Paul's like, there's, there's not another gospel, guys. There's one. But there are these counterfeits out here. He says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Distort it, right? Just kind of like play around with it. And if it's a little bit different, is that okay? Like, is that okay if, if your gospel is a little different than Paul's and, and the person over there is a little different than this church down the street and all of our gospels are a little bit different? Is that okay with Paul? Here's what Paul says in verse eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel 
contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. Paul says, look, if an angel comes down and there's gold dust and feathers falling from the ceiling, and that angel, who you can see with your own eyes, with his big wings and whatever, says anything different, that angel's going to hell. Like, Paul is not playing around here. He's not. He's not. It's nowhere in his vocabulary that there's another gospel. He says again, he says it twice, which is this like Jewish device of saying that something is mega important. Like, like um, one example, like in the Old Testament, oh, there's a ton, but I don't know Hebrew. So the, I'm just going on what I've heard. One example is like these pits that they would fall in, you know, like these holes and stuff, you know, um, where people were fighting each other. Somebody fell in a pit. Like if it was a really deep pit, it was a pit pit, right? It was a pity pit. Um, you know, so like when Isaiah has his vision of God, he says, God is holy, holy, holy. So the repetition amplifies it, right? So Paul says, let him be accursed. And then he says it again, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. People are not going to like when you say that there's one gospel and that it's important. They're not. Some people who are listening to this probably won't like what I'm saying. But I want you to see that this is the attitude of Paul and the apostles. It is non-negotiable. The reason that some Christians got killed when, when the church, uh, the early church was starting was because instead of saying Caesar is Lord, they said Jesus is Lord. They got killed for saying Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no other gospel than that. It says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're seeing that Paul says there's not another gospel, but, but there is stuff out there that parades as the gospel. There's man's gospel. There's distortions of the gospel. There's other gospels that might come through visions of angels. And Paul even seems to say, like, if I say anything different, don't even listen to me. Like, there's one gospel. So Paul's really racking his brain here. He's like, if I lose my mind later on, you know, or, or you know, whatever, I say something wrong, don't, listen, don't even listen to that. Like, we know what the gospel is. Um, Galatians 2.4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. 
Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So you see that Paul doesn't care what anybody thinks. I mean, he cares what people think, obviously. But he does. he's not going to submit. He doesn't care that he might look bad to important people when he says this. He's going to say it. And, and he says that these people's intention is not to make you free, but to bring you into slavery. Uh, still in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he's telling us that this gospel is a gospel of faith, a gospel that righteousness um, comes by grace through faith and not through a law, because otherwise there's no reason that Christ had to die. If Christ died for our sins, that means that we're getting his righteousness and he's taking our sin. And that would be purposeless if there was some other way to get righteousness. And he says oh, in chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Okay, this is important because a lot of people really make a big deal out of Israel having this separate gospel than the church. Not true. We are one because we are all being blessed in Abraham. Um, because of faith. It's not even about Abraham. It's about faith. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And why? Paul says in verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So it's interesting that Paul said that those who preach this other gospel man's gospel, this distorted gospel, are cursed. They're not only cursed because they're preaching a false gospel, but the people that are believing the false gospel are also under a curse because they're relying on works. Now, if you run this by somebody who doesn't believe this, who claims to be a Christian, they will say, um, Paul is only talking about works of the Old Testament law. He's only talking about circumcision. Um, this is not true because Paul digs into the principle behind it, okay? So the reason why it's wrong is not because the law is bad. The law is not bad. 
the law didn't go magically from being bad to good or anything like that. Um, Paul's going to tell us why it's wrong. Um, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. See, that's the deal. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So what I'm saying is you can't say that what Paul is saying here is that no, you can't be saved by the Old Testament law. Those works like circumcision and sacrifices cannot save you. Um, you can't isolate that and say, well, that's the only works that Paul's talking about. Because Paul digs into the principle behind it, which is that, like he says in verse 12, the one who does them shall live by them. So if it is about doing, if us doing something saves us, we're under a curse. Verse 13. Christ. This is good news. This is good news. This is not this is not bad. Defining the gospel is not bad news. Here's the good news. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, all the non-Jewish people, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Faith. It's faith that's, that is the instrument as, as it, I don't know if I'm using the right theological term there, but, but faith is the thing. We're saved by faith through grace. Or by grace through faith, and I said it backwards. In Christ alone, right? So um, it's, it's Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. It's not about doing or checking off anything. It's not about rituals. It's not about any of that stuff. There's no way to construe what Paul is saying about that. And, and if you turn to uh, chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. That's what freedom is, is not having to earn your salvation, not having to work for it, because work is part of the curse, even back in Genesis. Does that mean that Adam did no work before? No. But it's a picture, right? That works are, our works are, they're, um, how can you say this? They're, they're messed up, right? They can't save us. But the work of Christ, the real Adam, the new Adam, he can save us. He can do what Adam didn't do. And that's, how we're saved. Um, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So these false gospels are slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And, and here's the really amazing part here. 
brace yourself, okay? Because Paul's saying something that we would kick him out of church for saying. You are severed from Christ. Paul is telling these people that they cannot be saved if they're thinking that they're saved by works, specifically in this case by the law. Um, because you see that you can't isolate circumcision of the cause because Paul's saying it's the whole law. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Grace isn't grace anymore, right? That's what he's saying. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. A lot of people make a big deal out of that little phrase, working through love. It just means that your faith is alive and active like James says it should be, and like Paul says as well. Um, in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. So Paul's, um, I skipped a little part there, but in verse 16, he's saying like, um, this is how you, you have this, I'm saved by faith, but yet that doesn't mean that I'm going to go on sinning, right? It's because you're a new creation. So Paul's going to kind of show us here what the two different kinds of people look like. So when we're looking out at the world at two different kinds of people, or when we're looking at ourselves and saying, like, what does it look like to walk by the Spirit, even though I'm saved by faith, what should it look like, right? <coughs> For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, so he says you're not under the law. But look what he says also, that there are these things called works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of rage, or excuse me, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, enemy, or excuse me, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, is Paul saying, if you sin, you won't be saved because you're saved by works, by not sinning, or something like that? He's not saying that. What he is saying is that it, these are the things that you walk in, right? A, a Christian is someone who continually repents and believes, not someone who just says a prayer once to repent and believe, but it's an ongoing walking either by the Spirit or according to the flesh. So Paul's giving us this. He's, he's actually solving this problem that we have when we think that, that if we tell people that they're saved by faith, that they're just going to go do whatever they want to do. Well, that person that, that does that does has not have the new heart, right? They haven't really crossed over. All they've done is they're still in the darkness, but they're, uh, they're trying to claim that they're in the light, right? They're talking about Jesus and going to church, but that really hasn't changed, right? You have to have a new heart and be a new creation. 
Um, so Paul's giving a real warning here that those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And now look what he says in verse 22. Um, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So that's what a Christian looks like that has a new heart. So we see that there is a real change that has to happen, that that change can only happen by faith. That's where we're brought from being enemies to being reconciled to God. And once we are reconciled to God, we're a son or daughter of God. We are going to have the Spirit in us, and we are going to walk by the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that we can look out at the world and judge everybody according to what we see. That's not possible, and we're not called to do that. But we are called to know what it looks like and what we can expect when the Holy Spirit is indwelling us individually and a person in church or whatever, um, if that makes sense. Okay, um, so now... I'm going to John chapter 3. Story of Jesus and a Pharisee, Nicodemus. Um, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus said that, right? I'm trying to prove here that Jesus said the same thing that Paul says, okay? Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is thinking of this as like this functional thing that has to happen, right? Like, how do you make this happen? How do you go back into your mother's womb? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, this is a spiritual thing, okay? Water and the Spirit. I think water is significant because um, if you read John um, 1, you know, there's uh, John the Baptist preaching the baptism of repentance. So um, I'm sure that the Pharisees who weren't willing to repent, right? John kind of scolds them. Anyway, that's kind of a side point. But I know some people listening to this are going to say water is baptism. Uh, but it's not talking about baptizing babies in this context. It has nothing to do with it. Um, it's the, the idea that there is a real cleansing or a real repentance or change that goes on. Um, Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. Wind is same as spirit here. He's, Jesus has got to play on words. He's saying this is a spiritual thing that happens. Um, and the wind blows where it wishes. So this is a spiritual thing, and it's the will of the Spirit that this is happening. You can't really make it happen. And you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is 
the one who is doing the new birth, such that Jesus can call it being born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So Jesus was no respecter of persons. This man was considered the teacher of Israel. It didn't matter to Jesus. He was accountable for knowing what the word said, and Jesus was amazed that he didn't know it. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus is alluding to all this Old Testament stuff to try to um, show Nicodemus, who teaches the Old Testament, <laughs> that it's about believing in him for eternal life. That's Jesus's definition. And then, of course, verse 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay? We all know those passages, right? But let's keep reading. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay, so now Jesus is saying exactly what we're seeing, that there are two kinds of people, condemned people and not condemned people. And what Jesus says the difference is, these people who are not condemned have believed in me. And these people that are condemned have not believed in me. And this is the judgment. So Jesus is being very judgmental here. I'm not trying to be funny. That's the whole railing against anything that you say definitive is that you're being judgmental. Jesus is saying, literally, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So because of the evil in our heart and the sin that we like to commit, we love the darkness. And then we reject the light. The light has come into the world. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So I think you could hold this passage right up to the one that we just read from Paul, where Jesus explains how you are born again, um, what the gospel is, what brings you from darkness to light? And then he clearly says the, the works, the evil works are, are characteristic of the darkness and the works that look good in the light are the characteristics of the light. So I hope I've convinced you of at least one thing so far, that Paul and Jesus are saying the same thing. Um, we're not looking at some obscure one or two verses. I mean, not to pick on anybody here, you know, um, but if you watch a Joel Osteen sermon, there'll be like little half verses, you know, 10 little half verses, if there's 10, that he'll quote throughout his sermon and misapply and take out of context. We're reading large chunks of scripture and making 
a case that I think is pretty strong here. Okay. So since we're talking about the new birth, I want to go to Peter. Um, so we'll go to first Peter verse three, one chapter one, verse three. Okay. Um, once again, all the apostles preach the same gospel. Here's Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds like Jesus. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see these things? It's not about you doing works um, or completing these tasks or do these rituals at whatever group that you're going to or church that you're going to. It's about faith. And we're being guarded by our own power? No, we're being guarded by God's power. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So uh, this just kind of a minor note here that, that there are trials that will come into a Christian's life. So one reason why someone like Joel Osteen's gospel is not true. It's a distortion at the very least, if not a full-on anti-gospel, um, depending on what sermon you're listening to from him. But Peter says you're going to go through trials. Jesus says you're going to go through trials. There's a testing to our faith that happens. And the reason why is not because it's of works, but because it is about faith and that it's more precious than gold, though tested by fire. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the outcome of that faith is our salvation, right? It's not, we're not suffering for it like a suffering is a work. It's still a faith. So even though we see these different um, things that happen to Christians, that doesn't change the nature of salvation. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed, ransomed means bought, right? From the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. So we weren't bought into the family of God with something that is not gonna work. We were bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. To be born again? No, he says, since you have been born again. Once again, he says, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Peter is just 
saying exactly the same thing that Paul and Jesus are saying, that there is a, a, a real change from old creation to new creation. There's a real moving from the darkness to the light, from uh, that process of, or that, that reality of being born again by the gospel, right? The word of God. Uh, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Listen, this is not even really even in this context being used to talk about the Bible. It's talking about something that God does by his word. It's not going to blow away like grass. It's not going to die like a flower. It is going to happen because he said it. So we are standing by faith. It's not even that our faith is like this thing that we muster up to save ourselves. It is a faith like standing on the rock. It is about God and his word and his promise doing what he said it's going to do. It's believing God. Faith is not believing in God. It's believing God. There's a huge difference there, right? Okay. Um, okay, now I'm um, trying to go fast. Although I think we've already hit an hour. So aim for a half hour. Maybe we can hit an hour and a half. First John 5. First John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, past tense, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now listen, is John saying that obeying his commandments made you born again? No, he's saying that this is an effect of the cause that that this is this is how we know we have been born again, right? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So do we have to keep commandments? Yes, Christians have to keep commandments. Um, but it's because we have a new identity that we want to and we do end up keeping commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's John's very concise gospel. It doesn't mean that just because, like we've said before, John's not contradicting anybody here. John wrote the last thing I read about Jesus, or the second to last thing I read, about Jesus uh, talking about the new birth. So John's not contradicting Jesus, okay? Um, and Jesus is not, like, stop setting scriptures against each other, right? It's all saying one thing, and you have to let it kind of say that, like you're listening to a band play, you know? There's a guitar player and a drummer and a bass player and a singer, and that makes the song. And so you have to let it all harmonize together what, what's being said. Um, so John's just using this basic confession here that Jesus is the Son of God. But it doesn't mean if I walk down the street and I say, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And somebody says, yes, that I, I should go no further, right? 
because otherwise we might as well rip out the other things that we read today, right? Remember, the Bible is 66 books, and God has chosen to put all of that information there. And John's point here is that there is a new birth. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. So now, now he's saying that, he's not just saying believe in Jesus, right? He's saying there is something new inside of you, right? So this is a spiritual birth, right? Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Okay, so that testimony, John's explaining, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, so it's a gift, and this life is in his son, and it's only available through Jesus. Okay, so that person on the street who says, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven. Okay, is salvation a gift? Well, I don't know, you know, you kind of have to do this and that. Oh, okay. But that's not what, when John's explaining what he means here, that's not what he says. He says it's a gift. He gave us eternal life. And what if you ask that person who says they believe in Jesus, well, what do you think happens to people who don't believe in Jesus? Well, I think God's going to, you know, be understanding and I can't judge them. Um, John says this life is in his son. It's, it's only in his son. In verse 12, John says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Very definitive statements here. Two kinds of people in the world, right? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. All of these apostles would be liars if eternal life was something that we don't know if we have until we get our works weighed at the end of time. You know, when we say things like, I don't know, God's going to judge people, you know, I can't judge people. I understand the intent behind that. But I, need, I think we need to think about what we're really saying. Is, is it almost like we're saying that the quality of a person's heart you know, the goodness inside of a person is going to save them on the last day, that God's going to kind of look and see like, you know, you had a good heart, you, you tried your best. Um, I know it'll contradict everything I said in the Bible, but I'm going to go ahead and, and save you now instead of doing what I said I was going to do, which is to save you by faith in my son. I'm just going to save you because I like you and you're nice. You know, that's like not, not what this is saying and it, it's it's not saying you know that we have to do things to get eternal life it says john says no you can know if you have it right here and, and it's because it's it's a new birth right you know your identity is is that you're a child of god because of this 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 and this not just because you feel like it right Okay, so I've shown you Paul, Jesus, Peter, and John, and I want to um, end with Paul again. And in the interest of time, I'm not going to read it, but uh, I'd encourage you to write this down um, because it's super important. Romans 3.21 through 5.21, maybe I'll do another episode just on that, but I'd encourage you to write that down and read that. Romans 3.21 through 5.21.
through 521, it just reinforces everything that we've already said. And it's two, well, yeah, it's two kind of chapters that really go into depth there. Romans 3.21 through 5.21, pretty easy to remember. Start on verse 21 in chapter 3 and end um, at the end of chapter 5. All right, I'm going to end here um, in Ephesians 2, uh, which if I wanted to be lazy, I could have just gone here to begin with. Um, and really, I would encourage you to read Ephesians 1 and the verses that we're going to read. So you might want to read Ephesians 1 as well. But here's Paul explaining exactly what we just said. He, he's putting it all together. This is one of my favorite passages because it's so clear that there's two kinds of people in the world. There's one gospel. That gospel is about what Jesus did for us. It's about what God did, right? It gets applied to us in such a way that we're born again and we're brand new and that it happens by faith. It's so clear. Whoever's listening to this, if you haven't heard anything else I've said, if you're still in here after this hour, please listen to this. We're going to end with this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 11. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead, he says. Following the course of this world, right? Two kinds of people in this world. The default is this. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says, look, sons of disobedience. That's what we all are. We're dead. We're spiritually dead and we're walking according to the course of the world we are sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived so it includes all of us in the passions of our flesh it's what we wanted to do that was what our free will was choosing right that was what we wanted to do was to sin carrying out the desires of the body and the mind so this is sins that happen in the recesses of our brain and sins that we carry out and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he's saying um, we're under the wrath of God. That's a real thing. Like there's people that are under the wrath of God and under the grace of God. And, and, and those are two different things. And we want you to be reconciled to God, right? Um, here's verse 4. These are the two most important words in the Bible, right? Relatively speaking here, but... <laughs> if you understand them, but God, right? It doesn't say, but you were so nice, but you went to this church, but you gave money to the homeless, but you um, did the sacraments, but you went door to door, but you um, volunteered for the, uh, to be in the army and fought for your country, but you uh, abstained from drugs your whole life but you really loved your kids. Did None of these things are things that save us because we're bad people. That's what we have to understand. We are on the other side, sons of disobedience under the wrath of God, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
See, it can't be something that we do because God does it. Faith is just like the little pipeline, you know, it's not even any, faith itself is not even a work. And he's going to say so much in just a second. Um, by grace, you have been saved. So that is the, the key here. It is of grace. And if it's not of grace, then it's not the gospel. And you can't play games like I've heard some Catholics, uh, apologists or um, teachers say that, well, everything that you do in the works is of grace too. So that's a word game. That is twisting with the Bible and distorting the gospel here. This is not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying we're saved by grace, which means it's not anything that we do. And I'll prove it in just five verses here. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you think that a real Christian, a real born-again Christian, and I mean born again in the sense that we've seen today, that they have gone from darkness to light. Not that they've done any um, emotional experiences or whatever, right? It says that we're already seated with Christ in other places. God doesn't make a mistake. He brings something. It's something he does. Brings something from being dead to making them alive together with Christ. To bringing them into the family. Once you're in the family, you're in the family. The problem is some people think they're in the family and they're not. And that's what all the warnings in Scripture are about. But this is Paul talking about an objective reality, something that God did, something that God does. Verse 7, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen, the people on the other side until they are born again, they do not have the immeasurable riches of God's grace. They are hanging by a thread because they're under the wrath of God. But the immeasurable, the riches that I can't even measure of his grace means that I'm not going to run out of his grace on this side. If I'm truly on this side, I'm not going to run out of grace because it's something that God's doing. And then verse 8, for by grace, that immeasurable rich grace, you have been saved. Once again, past tense. Through what? Faith. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. How can Paul be any more clear? This is not your doing. It's through faith. He doesn't say through baptism. He doesn't say through going to church services. He doesn't say through saying this prayer. He doesn't say um, through insert whatever religious ritual or thing that we've heard that this is how, you know, this is what saves us. It is faith. And that faith is not, cannot be defined as something that we do. This is not your own doing. It is not something you... You didn't work up enough faith to save yourself. You're not saved because you're smart enough to choose God and everybody else is too dumb to do it. It is nothing that we could ever boast about. Paul says over and over again. Not a result. He says, it is the gift of God. It's a gift. Not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. If it was about how many times I went to confession... I could boast about that. If it was about 
um, how many times I took communion. I could boast about that. If it was about how much money I gave to the poor, I could boast about that. If it was about how great a marriage I had, I could boast about that. If it was about who I voted for, I could boast about that. But if it's about God doing something that I can't do, I can't boast about that. That's what faith is. That's the gospel. There's one gospel. There's two kinds of people. There's one gospel. This is the gospel of grace. Verse 10. So you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. The Bible says a lot of things about works. James says things about works. Paul says things that sound like works. The writer of Hebrews says things that sound like persevering and working and, you know, what's going to happen if this happens. What is Paul saying here? Whatever Paul's saying here has to be true. Whatever Jesus said about the new birth has to be true. Whatever Peter said about the new birth has to be true. Whatever John said about the new birth has to be true. We take everything that the Bible says, we let it all speak, and it all harmonizes. And here's how Paul, here's where Paul says that works go. And he is not talking about works of the law. So that's another reason why you can't play that game where you say, well, in Galatians, he's talking about works of the law, and this is talking about this other kind of works because we've already proven that it's not about anything you do. So that argument is out of the water. Here's where Paul puts works. For we are his workmanship. So he finishes talking about the salvation. It happened because of God's work. But God, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Are, are, you, are we going to create ourselves in Christ Jesus? Is that what's happening here? Are we creating ourselves in Christ Jesus? No way. It's something that God did. But, listen, for good works. Oh, that's where works come in, is that God transferred me from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. He made me a new creature with a new heart so that I could do good works. Don't get the cart before the horse. The works don't get me from this side to the other side. The, the, the root is what God did, and that flows up and produces the fruit of the Spirit. But it's what God does that makes that possible. He created us in Christ Jesus for good works. And he makes it so clear. Which God prepared beforehand. So it's still not even us doing it, right? It's like fruit on a tree. Right? It's all about what's coming through the soil, through the roots. The fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit. God is working through us. God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the works are on the other side of the equation. So um, if you're a math person, you can kind of visualize this. You can write down this equation, right? And that is that... Uh, let's see, how does it go? <laughs> um... I think it's uh, faith equals, 
going on a limb here because I'm really tired. I might say it wrong, but let me try it. Faith equals justification plus works, right? So that in the equation, works are in the equation, but they're something that happens on the other side of being made right with God, right? And so when Protestants say that we're saved by faith alone, if you're a math person, this will make sense. If you subtract works on both sides of the equation, like you would solve an equation, it'll say faith minus works equals justification. So that's what we're saying here, that faith, apart from works, right? They're not on that side of the equation. We are justified by faith apart from works, by faith alone. But the works are in the equation. They belong on the other side. Faith equals justification plus works that follow. And there's a lot of fun things you can do with those equations that kind of show you the different errors and the truth. But those are the basic two. It's really late. I don't think I can tie a nice neat bow on the end of this. I just want to say if you're listening to this that I love you and I want you to know the gospel. And um, I stayed up late and did this hoping that some people will listen to it and that it will make a difference because it's made all the difference in my life. And um, so good night. God bless. And uh, talk to you when I talk to you. <laughs> good night.